That is an Irish drinking song and the Scat Man. Welcome to Movie Victory. Starring David Victory. my opening thing. As the host. It's Movie Victory, and it's uh, your host here, David Victory. And this is the only scientific movie podcast where we break down the movies um, and talk about science. And uh, I'm your host, David Victory. Um, The movie we're talking about today is uh, The Dead... Um, John Huston directed, uh, his son did the adapted screenplay, I think. Huh. And, um, with me as always is Huey JPEG. Wiki wah wah. Skibbity bidi doom bada pop. Boom bada pop. Is this get James Joyce, the original Scatman. Playing Scatman. I'm not sure how that's related. Well, maybe if you listen instead of talking over me, you'll see that it's related because... Oh. Use it for office naps. Yeah, I can hear you. Or Go ahead. as a yoga support. It's also that? a great meditation seat. Hello. Talk. Um, what, uh, I was thinking like one of our best intros ever, really. Was, yeah, like, it was oh, really energetic. A lot of energy. Well, James Joyce is the original Scatman. I don't know if you knew that. I don't know how we're de- defining Scatman. Uh, well, okay. First of all, it has nothing to do with... Tell me what a Scatman is. Scat. As a category of poop. Although, James Joyce known for being scatological in his writing but no i'm referencing of course finnegan's wake being the original gibberish song which is scat music skibbity bibbidi boom bada boop boom bada boop oh okay so like making um sounds with your mouth and just like joyce does in his writing mm-hmm. not with and, you know, and like the letterist i guess letter, the letterist letters. did it too but yeah. you know so it's fun well, I I was very tempted to mention this earlier, but do you know what today is when we're recording this? I mean, for whoever's listening, it will probably most likely not be today. Yeah. But do you know this? Today is is, what... uh, is June sixteenth, and that is the right. day that uh, Celine and Jesse met in Before Sunrise. Yes. Okay. It's also Bloom's Bloomsday. It's Bloomsday. Bloomsday. All right. All right. <laughs> you had me going. I wasn't sure if you knew or not. Yeah. Did you know Bloomsday. that that's the date in Before Sunrise? I did not know. They say it at the end. Oh, really? And at the end of the film, they say, let's meet six months from now. Last night was J- June 16th. Oh, cool. Which is Bloomsday. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know when I first found out about Bloomsday. Whenever I tell most people Happy Bloomsday, they do not know what I'm talking about. Um, but it's the day that uh, the story of Ulysses takes place mm-hmm. in um, June 16th, 1904. And... Uh, it is the only literary holiday I'm aware of. I guess there's like National Poetry Day, um, which is kind of cool, where you people talk about poetry sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like this is such a cool holiday. I mean, what other holiday do you have? Like people reading, professional mm-hmm. actors and all different kinds right. of enthusiasts around the world doing readings. There's some online stuff going on right now. I can definitely, I definitely think that the 
the celebrating is not as much as it's been in recent years, but that's kind of like how it is with any literary figure. Uh, I think it depends on where you're at, like what circles you're yeah, in. Yeah, depends on like, For, uh, yeah, obviously there's always something in like big cities like New York, mm-hmm. you know, there hasn't been something in St. Louis in a while, but there has in the past. I uh, actually, and there's, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. No, you. No, I was just going to say that it's... Uh, Obviously, the big celebration is in Dublin, where there's walking tours, which would be pretty awesome to do. If I was ever in Dublin, I would yeah. definitely want to do the walking tour. Um, you could get to go to all the locations mm-hmm. from the from the book, which is pretty cool. Yeah, my favorite thing about Irish writers, uh, they write in English. No translation needed for Finnegan's Wake. Um, but uh, I discovered Bloomsday existed because when I worked at a bookstore, a uh, Strand bookstore in New York, there was this, uh, for lack of a better word, fucking nerd who had a literary degree in college, which served him well because he was working at the same bookstore I was. And he told me that he took a class on Ulysses. Loved it. Loved the book. I'm sure anyone that actually reads it does. I have not. I don't plan to. Um, and he said for the final, for the class, they, on June 16th, on Bloomsday, the final was you, you went with a group of whatever it was, three to five people, and you read the entire book out loud. You took turns reading the entire book out loud throughout the day. He said it took like 10 hours or something like that. Uh, and you just went in public and read it out loud to people. You know, sometimes people would gather a little bit or not, and that was his final, and everyone just had to do it, and then you passed the class. So that's how I found out Bloomsday existed, was this guy did that. I feel like, I mean, I think it's it's a over 20 hour like audiobook i have the audiobook i'm almost curious now to look at it i guess it doesn't really matter it's it's almost a thousand pages i it i would have to think it would take you it's like over 700 hours, but maybe maybe yeah depending on what edition you have or whatever mm-hmm. the version that i have a couple different editions but they're always like right around mm-hmm. that i always think about the problematic part when i think about readings like it does have the n-word in it you know there are some very crass things in Finnegan's Wake, so we just well, let's just not forget the, the time but, period as well. I mean, well, I'm obvious. I'm not, I'm not criticizing Joyce here. He's he's representing how people talked in, in this era. Yes. Um, but but what I am saying is that like just as a person reading that and people not understanding that context, are you going to say those things? Like, I know. Whenever we talk about readings, I'm just like, I wouldn't want to read that part. <laughs> just, I would love to take right. part in a reading. Well, same uh, thing. I mean, well, same thing with Mark Twain or you know Kipling. Oh, throws it out there. Yeah. But again, lived it towards the end of the 1800s. Where weird, weird topic to jump off on Joyce. No black people in this movie. I should add. Uh, no, there are not. And I wasn't sure. Did you? And so the dead. While we're talking about this today, we watched John Huston's version of uh, the short story "The Dead," which is the end of Dubliners, which I would mm-hmm. recommend if you haven't read Dubliners. It's just a great collection of short stories, and it ends with "The Dead," which is a pretty sad story. However, <laughs> however you think about it, uh, I don't know. If you, I don't know if you told me you hadn't read the short story before. I don't know if you've read it mm, afterwards. Years uh, ago, uh, years ago, ago, I read Dubliners when I was maybe 22 or something. Actually, you recommended Araby to me. Yeah, love the, Araby. Yeah, uh, which is the one I probably, maybe the only story in there I read twice. I, I do not remember it, the, re, the rest of the book. I did not reread it before or after watching this movie, um, especially after watching it. It made me not want to read it. Uh, although there are certainly, and you would be able to, 
parse out the market differences between the book and the adaptation. Because certainly, I there's a lot more dialogue in the in the movie, right? It's almost identical. Uh, this is this was my hot take. I didn't want to tell you, but the short mm. story in the movie are almost word for word. And you are right that there's more dialogue, but he basically uh, he tells you all the dialogue for what they talk about. Mm -hmm. So Joyce Joyce does the thing where if you read Joyce, he like he goes from here's the dialogue to here's me explaining the dialogue, the indirect dialogue. Sure. And so the dialogue in this is either word for word from the story or it's indirect dialogue that's then interpreted as regular dialogue. So there's a couple, there's like two noticeable differences I, I had to read online because after I finished the short story, I was like, oh my gosh, this is almost exactly <laughs> like a imitation of everything that happened. Um, the poem reading, the translation, that that is not in the short story. That's one of the few things that's not. Um, and so, yeah, very, very much the same story. Uh, and I remember, I'll just, I'll just talk about this briefly. When I yeah. read this originally, I would say I definitely did not understand it as much as I would say I do now, just being kind of an older person. Because, um, yeah, I read it, like, in my early 20s. And um, I just remember thinking a lot about who the dead were in the story. Mm. And... You get at the end, the end is the reveal, which you like texted me about. It's like, oh, I want to talk about the end. I was like, yeah, the end's the reveal of like mm -hmm. this woman has this very sad story about a lover who died. And it's almost she blames herself because he was sick and yet she, he kept visiting her and it, mm -hmm. it was outside in the snow. and it was the, in the snow. Right. And she's like, I killed him. And um, it's through music that his kind of image of him and I always view the dead in this as kind of like they're always there that's what I always mm -hmm. take away from the story it's like throughout all of the scenes that we saw throughout this dinner party the dead are looming over the living mm -hmm. and they're always being compared to they're always being referenced they're always these larger than life characters that nobody else wants to talk about and then at the end it's the reveal of this lover that his wife had or our main character's POV his wife had this lover when she was younger and basically he finds out that there's no way that he can ever measure up to that guy mm -hmm. and he's married to this woman for at this point like 18 years and he's just like I didn't even know about this right. who is this woman it's devastating. I don't even know her he it, has an existential crisis not just about that but it, and then he sort of he doesn't recollect the entire night, but then you start to... He's really the only person we get a good inner world for, right at the very end. is like He also reflects a little bit on how the night has gone and how he feels about the family and this sort of thing. But yeah, he has a profound existential crisis, which is my favorite part of the movie, to be sure. That's what you got a lot... That's Joyce's signature move, the epiphany, where he's got mm -hmm. like... And what I feel like I can finally appreciate now is just you see how he talks about it but doesn't talk about it throughout the story like this, which adds tension, but not in a way that I think most people are aware of. Because I imagine most people watch this and be like, all right, they're having a dinner party. There's a little conflict about this guy who maybe drinks too much. Yeah. It's just like, all right, it's, it's the end, you know. And then, <laughs> and then 
in my mind, the way the story does, it kind of hits you with this. This is what it was about, mm-hmm. and it just kind of is kind of like, and then it just sticks with you, and you, know, you just kind of think about it. <laughs> I don't know if you thought about this because the ending does stick with me. I was actually, I was actually a little annoyed by the movie. I started it twice. I could not get past the first few minutes of these like rich Irish people being overtly polite. I was just like, oh man, I'm not in the mood for this. Finally made myself watch it a couple nights ago. Did not particularly enjoy it for a good hour. And then there's that moment where she's on the stairs when they're leaving and the guy sings the acapella really beautiful song. After like two songs, which in my opinion are not great. There's like the old woman that everyone like patronizes saying she was good. Oh, you're still a great singer. And I was just like, oof. And then, yeah, the ending was beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. I, lo- I loved the last ten minutes of the film. Which I think is same with the story is you know you're tolerating this obnoxious psychological and political intricacies of just family and a a large get-together and the social mores of the early 1900s and all this kind of shit which I could care less about not that I mean family dynamics are always interesting but early 1900s you know I'm not I'm not going out of my way to watch Downton Abbey you know but I yeah like I said I love the ending I thought it was so beautiful I thought it was so well done and has a thing he does a thing which many people do and and most people I think do not pull off well which is you somehow fit the title into the story or the dialogue and it is the last I mean you're wondering up until Angelica Houston who is not given much to do but then at the very end is is a I mean I think Angelica Houston's a great actress and she's great in this this really meaty last performance that she's given and then I'll, I'll just read the the last line of the short story if you don't mind uh, I have to read it in an Irish accent because when I would read Finnegan's Wake when I lived in New York, I realized it's the only way it makes any... it sounds good. <clears throat> His soul swooned slowly as he heard the snow falling faintly through the universe and faintly falling, like the descent to their last end upon all the living and the dead. And for whatever reason, you know, like I said, a lot of people try to, like, squeeze the title in or they get the title from a piece of dialogue or a sentence that they write in the story and it always feels a little much it always feels a little contrived i don't know how you feel about that but for whatever reason this works perfectly for me as a reader or viewer so that's that's my riff on the end that's how i feel i i could talk about the ending for the rest of the show because again i was not that although some of the camera is very deft and like it's very well crafted the way he keeps you almost in this like claustrophobic social space the whole movie so it's good in that sense but i don't enjoy watching it until the last 10 minutes so that's yeah my... go ahead here i got, I got a couple of things to respond to uh but uh i guess uh first the singing scene which i will comment on i will say this is a movie that will hit you or not hit you i could see myself watching this at at some time and like a Berkheimer harmony just being kind of frustrated with the lack of seemingly anything's happening um but i guess because i did know the story and um one of the things but i'll I'll comment about the singing first but then i'll go into kind of like how i i appreciate what exactly it's doing and what they're talking about um right and for the record you have far more context having read the story much more than i have and finally finishing ulysses last year uh which neither here nor there but so when I listen to the singing, I'm like, 
I don't remember the singing supposed to be bad. And so I was just like, it sounds like she's being very technical. Like, that's what I, yeah. from the, mm-hmm. there's an old woman that sings later on. Then there's talk about, like, the dead singer, which I like, you know, oh, there's another dead person that's just kind of living large and died young in the story. But I was really curious when I did the reread. I was like, oh, is it, what is, what is it, how does it describe the singing? And it describes the singing as basically that, as it does sound good, but it's technical. And so I was kind of like, should that woman have been a better singer? I don't know. I don't know. She sounded like very technical to me, so I guess it, it worked. But at the same time, this is something I kind of, when my wife was watching with me sometimes, I was like, this is just something I think is interesting about the Irish. Mm. If you want to be a real man as an Irishman, you've got to sing tenor. You know, it's that tenor, <laughs> it's that tenor singer that is uh-huh. bringing in all the ladies. And it's like, funny. everybody everybody sings. If you're If you're an Irish person, the way that they're portrayed in Ulysses and Dubliners, like, if you singing is just a way of life you know right. other people i guess they play cards or whatever but the irish sing and there's and nothing drink. more yeah drink drink too but we don't have to focus on that but there's nothing more like that's the stereotype of the irish but what i think is funny is that to the irish there's almost nothing more masculine than to be a, an amazing tenor singer like that is mm-hmm. just bringing all the ladies and so like yeah. so much so much of the talk around the singers and the singing you see throughout this and it's just i just love it because it's just such a fascinating culture that uh really esteems language and mm-hmm. uh acapella singing where you're mm-hmm. just like what other cultures really like this? And I, I think I that's I'm why I love... They, they exist, yeah. I think that's why I love the staircase scene at the end where she's just, like, almost be, becoming sad listening to this man sing, who's withheld his voice from us. We know he's the professional singer. Um, and then sings absolutely beautifully, pretty much after everyone's left or is leaving. Uh, a couple things. One, that's a, that's a hilarious observation. I think it's true also that for some reason tenor is, like, fetishized as a masculine thing that's very amusing about the the older woman who i think maybe in her prime was a very good singer and i think that's something else going on in that scene is like having a talent and then with age you know whether it's energy or whether it's you know vocal cord deterioration or whatever kind of that that talent beginning to fade but you still wanting to express it and then everyone's being reassuring but the actress is very good i think not not a very good singer i in my opinion because it does come off a little like robotic like you said it's a little too technical it's a little it's precise in a way that is off-putting and i think she kind of knows that people are patronizing her you know she's like no she's like my ear is still good enough to know and it reminds me of a quote a quote i love which i'm not going to give you the context of which author said this i want i want to see how you feel about it first as the spirit wanes the form appears which I think is such a, a, a curious little quote because it's like, you know, the more spirit you have, not just in youth, but the more spirit that you maintain throughout your life and like whether, whatever that means, freedom or freedom of expression, not to say that your work is formless or your writing is formless, but you think less about it. And so I think what, what he's saying is the more formal you've become, the further away you are from your, you know, your true form of expression, that kind of thing. I don't know. How do you feel about that? I bring that up because I wonder if as she got older, her singing became more technical. 
I guess I don't think it's an all or nothing thing, and I think that you can show spirit and passion through form in a way that a lot of great authors do, uh, where like you know somebody like Joyce, somebody could criticize and be like, oh, he's breaking all the rules, but there is form and structure to everything he does. Uh, sure. Or somebody like Shakespeare. So, I, so I mean, at the same time though, I, I agree with the idea that if you are focusing on the form and not the spirit or the passion then you are missing a lot to whatever your creative endeavor mm -hmm. is. And to Absolutely. me, it's just like, you gotta have those two sides. You gotta mm -hmm. have the side that comes from creativity, and then you have to have the side that comes from the audience member to look at the form, look at the measure, look at what you're doing, what you accomplish, and you need to apply both sides to creative pieces so that other people can appreciate it. Because you could do something with spirit and passion and get something out of it, but if you want somebody else to get something out of it, you normally need that other crack at it, mm -hmm. you know, that other side of your mind. Absolutely. I think that's the correct way, you know, to interpret this this quote, this this strange little quote. I don't think he's pointing the finger at anybody. Like he's not pointing the finger at bad writing who is too formal or anything. I mean it's I mean there's also no context to the quote, right? But yeah, uh, that one always stuck with me for some reason. Because yeah, you're right, it's a it's a balancing it. You have to have both. If it's all form and no spirit, it's not interesting. If it's all spirit and no form, it's chaotic uh, or unrelatable, at least. And so, yeah, it's it's finding that balance for yourself. But yeah, uh, enough about Finnegan's Wake. <laughs> is is that from Finnegan's Wake? No, 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 no. There's no. That's a coherent sentence. It's not in Finnegan's Wake. Uh, you want to know who said it? Yeah, sure. It's an author I'm actually not a big fan of, uh, although I do like some of the things he said about writing. And it is Charles Bukowski. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Uh, who is someone who, you know, wrote thousands of poems. Most of them are banging the same drum. But every once in a while, he has just the most beautiful line I've ever heard. By no means my favorite poet, but and certainly a very destructive and, and fucked up individual. But well, we, don't, we don't have to talk about Bukowski during the dead. But he has some quotes about writing that I'm like, oh, wow, that's interesting. Anyway, yeah, yeah, the singing, jeez. I'll I'll shift back here because to, to me, uh, so much about what Joyce does is about the environment, and um, one of the things I love in Ulysses at the beginning is these conversations about Hamlet in the bar, and then the politics in the bar, and like the, what people talk about, to me is so relatable. And I just kind of listen to it. I'm like, these aren't that different than conversations that I've had that people are still having. Mm -hmm. And these personalities are so similar. And I can't help but think the same about the storyline here. It's like we got this one son who's got a drinking problem, but he's kind of nice and people know about it, but they don't talk about it. They got one guy who's kind of belligerent. He's a guy that's sexist, clearly the older guy. That can kind of get in people's faces. We got a mm -hmm. woman that's a little bit more feisty, a little bit more independent, but she's not going to tell anybody. We got all of these people that we've met, that we've had conversations with, that feel completely fleshed out. And um, to me, this is just kind of like we haven't really changed that much as people. Like, that's kind of what I take from mm. this kind of stuff. And I can see why it might seem a little mon mundane, but. To me, it's almost a little reassuring because it's like we it's hard for us as people to kind of get too far away from whatever our base is, you know, and mm -hmm. whether it's over 100 years ago or 200 years ago 
a lot of times we just kind of fit in these social structures and have these kind of relationships that in a lot of ways have not changed, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and so that, and I kind of feel comforted by that. And then at the same time, a story like this can kind of bring um, such focus on what we all care about, which is being happy, spending time together, and also just kind of as trying to escape from the dead or to not think about the dead. And this is not like a, a way that I typically think about dead people, but uh, in this story, I feel that the presence of the dead is almost um, always there and is kind of just looking over the characters and uh, maybe silently. And in this way, it's, it's almost a little bit of a scary story because it, it's like, it's, a lot of a lot of ways I would describe that everyone at this party is basically trying to not think about how they're gonna die mm-hmm. and about the people that are already dead. And that's the subtext in all the conversation. Which just kinda like you know, I I, I know I'm doing a lot of the work now, but <laughs> but no, now fine. that that adds to me when I see the dialogue and I focus on it's like this is what they're saying. What they're not saying is I'm gonna die. They're gonna die. They're getting closer to death. I don't know what's gonna happen to them. Mm-hmm. Or and then when you get the little bit of inner dialogue from the main character, what is he thinking about? Like the most base things. He's kind of like, "Am I gonna get late tonight? What's gonna <laughs> go on?" So he's kind of uh-huh. mad, you know. Like he's thinking about all of the most superficial things um, in that inner dialogue, and it's always me, me, me. And I don't think that's unique. I think that's normal. I think, he, I think he's being alive. I mean, I think yeah. that's. Yeah, he's not dead. He's thinking about these base things. Uh, I do completely agree about every character is a type of person that you know, regardless of whether it's class or your, you know, what language you speak, the culture you grew up in. Because this this is not just a family, but a social party. Yeah, there are these types, not like archetypes, but there are these types of people where you're like, oh, I know her. I know that lady. You know, I've worked with her before. And so, yeah, that's a, that's definitely a cross-cultural thing that Joyce is able to observe here. He's like, oh, that kind of person. Or, it's not really conflict, but one of the main or most focused on characters, uh, like you mentioned, is the drunk. And one of the things I like so much is once Angelica Houston and then the guy who's in her monologue we hear get home one of them i forget it might have been him comments on like how overbearing his mother is and he's like if i had her as a mother i'd be drunk too something to that effect right um and that's kind of a reveal because we don't see too much of that in the mother character but these people all know each other they've known each other for years and they're like yeah geez i wouldn't want to live under her roof you know and so i think that's that's interesting because certainly that person still exists right the mama's boy oh yeah and also just his his story or his character i think is sympathetic in a lot of ways mm-hmm. yeah he, he he drinks too much and he's like there's a lot of pressure put on him and that his mom is so mean to him in every scene if she can say something negative to him she does right. you know constantly belittling in a very casual way and that is such a negative thing for anybody to have to carry around especially if you're sensitive and if mm-hmm. you know it's your it's your mom it's not i i feel like a lot of times uh we show these and it's like that's just how moms are and it's like well mm. 
that's just no. how moms are is destroying their little sons and it's not like fathers are uh you know that they don't do something similar they do you know mm-hmm. uh mothers and fathers both do the, these kind of things and um i'm not gonna judge the mother for why she's doing what she's doing that's not what we're talking about uh but just the way that you have a character who is struggling and suffering and he's getting sympathy from some people but not sympathy from others and uh it's just a normal social structure that we see a lot he's also the one that speaks up and he's like says uh the the outdated phrase negro sing and i think he's just as good i would be curious what you thought mm-hmm. and the implication is that you would you would be racist but right. he was such a good singer i don't know what you could have said about that right and so who who's the person who's speaking up for the minority oh it's the drunk you it's know and drunk. so what what does that say you know that mm-hmm. he somehow feels more and he has more he's more passionate of a person at least well know, he, also he's not dead yes absolutely um the drunk is by and large the the most alive person at the at the gathering which i think is no accident um but he also he gets belittled not only by his mother but by that guy his he goes by freddy the guy keeps calling him teddy his name is like whatever it is uh theodore alfredo something like that right um so and and again that's a really interesting it's not quite subtle but it's a really good way to show that this guy gets belittled he uses the diminutive uh, of both of his names, you know, Theodore Alfredo, and then I prefer Freddy. Don't call me Teddy. You know, both of those names are for little kids. You know, um, and so I think that is a just a beautiful choice, uh, which I think some people might not notice. But when you really understand the psychology of this character, it's like, oh shit, he's still getting. This is a grown ass man with a mustache who's a little too drunk most of the time, and everybody calls him Freddy. Ah. Uh, you know, it's a it's a it's a weird dynamic, but I think one thing I want to point out, like not just whether it's I don't be- think there's anything wrong with being called Freddy. I guess no, I, I don't either. I don't oh, no, either. Okay. But I'm saying I think it's a very I think it's a very pointed choice for this okay. character that he doesn't go by Frederick, right? Well, um, well the guy tell it called him Teddy to fuck just, with him, and then him to be like the name's Freddy. You yeah. called me Teddy. Like, that's just such high tension to be a mother. Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's like, how many times has this happened? How many times has this guy said this? You right. Know? And the point I wanted to, I was trying to get around to, and the reason I bring up that particular scene where he purposely calls him the wrong name, is something that happens, just like when he sticks up for the black musician, the who was a great singer, who on a technical level, there's nothing to critique. And that's why he brings it up, right? I think when you are systematically, uh, whether it's by your mother or a spouse or whoever, your self-esteem is whittled away at over years, and you don't even have to become a drunk like this character is, but I think that that burdens you and it sort of like breaks you down so many ways that you then have these outbursts, and you are more willing to say not just the socially impolite thing, but if somebody is fucking with you and says... (laughs) I mean, let's also face it, it's not his mother belittling him just one time. It's somebody else, and then he stands up to the guy, right? And so I do think there's a weird, like, psychological repression factor where the more consistent it is and the more you've been battered down over your life, the more likely you are to lash out 
when it seems particularly unfair or is from someone that you don't respect enough to not lash out at. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, you can't talk to this person, so you, you lashed out at the wrong person. And I would say, right, where is his dad? His dad's dead. I'm like, another dead character that's mm -hmm. kind of looming over a relationship. So, and didn't he have a brother that was dead too? Didn't I don't know. Maybe maybe not. But I remember it was like almost every relationship you could point to like a character has a dead person that they uh that's there, mm -hmm. you know, that they reference in some way or you can pick it up in the implications. Um I and mean, so yeah. Yeah. I mean, the story is also like you said it's kind of about aging. Oh, there's a lot of old people in the story. They're kind of looking at each other. When am I going to die? Oh, that person's older. They're going to die before me. This kind of thing. And I do... Oh, I forgot. What I, I lost my train of thought. Um, Are you were, standing up against aging? Did no. You what were you just bad? saying? What were you, what were you just saying about, about this guy? I was saying that, he, that his dad is not there. So his dad is a dead character just mm -hmm. kind of looming over his relationship and his upbringing. So right. I was like, each character, I think, has somebody that they have that's dead in their life that we're supposed to understand. Yeah, and that's why I think that one of the themes of the, the story is, is about aging and about death, of course. And it's about, especially with this character, who is, seems to have lost a father and maybe a brother, um, although everyone seems to have lost someone. I mean, Angelica Houston obviously lost the love of her life when she was a teenager which as we know teenage romance can be very intense uh psychologically speaking at least emotionally and i think the something the something that the story and the movie deal with really perceptively without ever really saying it is they deal with loss and like you said the dead are always sort of looming over it but that's the way we interpret that as an alive person is as a form of loss and as anyone knows as you age you inevitably lose more people in your life, assuming you're not the one that dies. Um, whether it's people you dated going away and your people, you know, friends moving away and you never talk to again, or of course, people dying, whether it's family, friends, whoever. Um, and it's almost as this just naturally the case that as you age, you lose more people. And you, I think at a younger age, loss is much harder. And I've heard several people say, like who are you know in their 50s or 60s like uh, I don't know you just get used to it some of them are harder than others but you kind of get used to just people drop off you know whether they die or they disappear or whatever and so I think I think the film does deal with loss in a really perceptive way even though it's not really a conversation that's had do you know what I mean and that's I guess what I love about Joyce it's all in the subtext it's like what they're not talking about and uh, this story is an example of all of those references to things unsaid conversations uh, just happen mentally and then you we get the preview of that with our our main character where I'm like what what is his name now uh, Gabriel yeah right yeah Gabriel's our main guy but our main character uh, but yeah we get his inner dialogue about how he's perceiving death and how he thinks about it and um, I think that's just kind of what we're supposed to get from what the other characters are kind of just not saying and mm -hmm. all the scenes. And, uh, yeah, loss is really tough. And um, death in general is just something that nobody wants to talk about. And um, if anything, I think that's one of the uh, other takeaways from this. It's just you, 
it's it's always kind of the elephant in the room. Nobody wants mm-hmm. to, and and I and I, I I hate to say the word hate, but I don't yes. like how when somebody dies, nobody wants to say they talk about them anymore. We just want right. to pretend that they don't exist, and it's just kind of like mm-hmm. moving on. We can never say that person's name again. Um, you know, I have. I'm not going to call out specifically fa- sure. family members, but I will say in general, when I ha- know somebody that dies and I have a fond memory of that person, you know, there is at times when I'll just kind of mention in passing, oh, so-and-so, you know, they remember that was such a great time. And I, mm-hmm. and, and I want to do that as like a nice thing to be like, I still remember them. I completely agree. I want to think- say that as a nice thing, but they don't say anything, you know, and it's like mm-hmm. I slapped them in the face. Okay, go ahead. No, I was just saying I completely agree. It's it's somehow frowned upon to even bring up a story about, uh, you know, whether it's a loved one to her past or just a friend. I mean, I had a similar situation recently where, you know, there was this kid I grew up with um, who a few years ago, four years ago, had a, there was an accidental death. And, you know, he's been like a recurring dream character and all kinds of stuff. Um, this is someone I grew up with since I was a child, since middle school at least, lived down the street from me. And uh, I think my dad asked about him at some point. And I was like, oh. Um, and, like, had to explain. It was a very awkward conversation. Again, I was not bringing up a, a great story but that I had with him. But I would have liked to after that and been like, oh, man, I remember this one time. But it was clear my dad was so off-put in the face of death that... You know, especially since this guy was in, you know, thirty-three or so, you know, whatever age he was. But so yeah, I know what you're. I know what you're talking about. I know that moment where death comes up in conversation, and there's sort of a awkward, like, let's brush it to the side. And I think that's because people are very much not good at dealing with loss. I mean, when Angelica Houston at the end unloads this this story of of the her, you know, high school boyfriend or whatever, uh, who what I think it was got tuberculosis or something and then like traipsed through the snow to go see her uh and that caused him to die ultimately even though he probably would have died anyway let's face it but might have sped up the process and how that weighed on her I mean she didn't force this person to do it he did it of his own free will and 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 uh Jesus did you hear that yeah somebody's trying to break in uh-huh and uh I'm actually in Dubai right now. And was, I think that was a blown tire. I think that, I don't know. But anyway, um, what was I saying? I think that what's so great about when Angelica Houston brings it up is she's immediately exhausted by it. I mean, it's the end of the night, so she's going to pass out anyway, but she passes out immediately after telling the story. Uh, devastating her husband, obviously. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's so not just awkward, but exhausting as a topic of conversation because it forces us to face that. Uh, I think death is somehow a very exhausting topic for most people I've ever met. I would very much like uh, a situation where I can trade stories about someone who's passed on and not feel like I'm overwhelming the other person. Uh, But I'm not... I don't like normal, polite conversation. <laughs> I prefer a little medium or, or heavy talk. Um, as, as evidenced by how deep we're going into this, this story. Uh, oh, I have one, I have one it's question. Like, it seems funny, though, to be like, 
no light talk, medium or heavy only. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> fuck like fuck small it. talk, man. I, don't care. I mean, yeah, talking about the weather can be nice for a minute, you know, or like, you know, the mention of the weather in a poem can give you a good feel for the setting. But life, but... Life's short. Let's, let's skip to the heavy stuff. Yeah, at least medium talk. Let's at least get to there, whatever that might be, whether it's political or philosophical or whatever. Um, let's talk about the message of the movie and not just some fucking trivia. I have a question for you, and I don't know if this, if you felt this way or thought of it, but I had this, having never seen the film, not really remembering the story. The ending, the epiphany, the, the big reveal where this woman says, oh, I had this, it's not really an affair, but I had this person I loved before I knew you. And it just struck me, like structurally, as the inverse of Eyes Wide Shut. In this film, we see the entire night, and then the woman reveals, oh, I had this love or this affair before you. The guy is, like, devastated, like, I don't even feel, I feel like I don't even know you anymore. You're beautiful, but I wonder how beautiful you were back then. You know, that kind of thing. And then we don't, and we just see his little existential crisis staring out the window at the snow. He does not go on the strange sort of kamikaze-like adventure that they do in Eyes Wide Shut because of being told. We don't see that, at least. But I, I don't know, did you did that, did that come up to you? Because it is the same thing. They are coming home after a party. Uh, she admits something that he never would have known in their bedroom. Uh, and then he's just wrecked because of it. So I don't know, I saw a correlation, or, or it reminded me of Eyes Wide Shut, at the very least. I think, yeah, I think you're right. It is the same... Uh same thing i would say i don't know if it would like that would have been like an inspiration or not uh these conversations that you have with your loved one late at night i think are a a generational thing so i I think (laughs) any any married man could have probably or woman could have written that scene because Mm -hmm. that 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 happens (laughs) you know same thing well actually have you read dream story by schnitzler that no that's based on on uh, eyes wide shut yeah it's great yeah yeah but that i think that's what strikes so true to me and i uh, you know these are definitely not the two only two examples in literature and movies of of couples having these conversations that you shouldn't bring up when you're trying (laughs) to go to sleep you know that's that's (laughs) all i'm gonna say yeah (laughs) yeah um i mean i've had many i mean i have never been married as you know but this is not just a spousal thing any couple can have that late night conversation i mean one of my favorite things in the world, one of my favorite moments is, you know, you've been intimate with someone and you're just laying in bed talking. It doesn't have to be a heavy conversation like this, but just the, all the ice has been broken in every, you know, emotionally, physically, and now you can just both relax. And to be able to just actually relax next to someone like laying in bed talking about whatever comes to mind, it's one of my favorite things. It's just one of my favorite moments in, in all of life. You know, next to like having a cigarette or like a really good meal, you know, and uh, so yeah, I just want to throw that out there. But I've also definitely had the way too heavy conversation that we should not be having if we want to sleep, for sure. Um, I feel like you have those good conversations earlier in the relationship, but then, then, then later on you're just like, oh, I don't know. I mean, done. sometimes. But you're, but you're right. It's personality type. Everybody's yeah. different. There also for might me, be long I, periods. Yeah. You know, before, right. before that happens again. I know. definitely am not like a had a hard time sleeping until I changed diet and 
mm. more regular sleeping routines. And so I'm like really just, if I'm laying down, I want to go to sleep because there mm-hmm. was a time, and I don't think I'm like this as much anymore um, because I've just gotten better at it, uh, really sticking to a strict schedule, which just really has helped me basically it's almost impossible for me to stay up now if my wife wants to have one of these conversations with me i'll be asleep i'm laying in bed you know it's mm-hmm. dark she she could be talking I'll, i'm gonna fall asleep now that definitely wouldn't have happened before but for the longest time i would have definitely related to this character a lot so i guess i'm glad that i'm still not like this man <laughs> because for him super jealous of his wife he's just mm-hmm. like what what who who are you thinking about? What's what's going on in your mind, dear? Tell, mm-hmm. Whenever you find yourself asking, so what are you thinking about? You are just opening yourself up to get like because it's in the a face. fucking because it's fucking roulette. You have yeah. no idea what the answer could be. And it, it could be she's been waiting to bring this up and she doesn't know how to say it. And now now she does. And now you're mm-hmm. like, first you're just kind of like, oh, is she thinking about a guy? that's like now you know and she's been he's been kind of noticing how distant she was throughout the evening and uh which now i would point to she was distant because she was thinking about this guy throughout the evening and then the song kind of brought his presence and it's just kind of like how much does she think about this guy uh and so when he learns that it's somebody that he can't compete with i feel like that is just the ultimate uh worst case scenario for a guy like this because it's like I just can't. She's always going to love this guy more completely than me. And he still feels in competition. Um, I will with, say with part a dead of that person, which with a dead person, which he can compete with. But right. I mean, I think this is weird because I've actually had to have a conversation like that where someone knew about a, a previous partner who was a very, very healthy relationship. You know, we're still friends. I know I say that phrase a lot, but it's because I have remained friends with certain people. Um, I don't find that taboo or anything. It's just a maturity thing. And uh, and I had to say to this person, who I was not dating, and I, I was just like, well, nobody can ever be that person again. There's, you know, She was there at a very particular time in my life. I was there for her in a very particular way. We had gone through just this right amount of stuff, which was good and bad, before we met. So it was just, it was right for that period of time. And then, you know, we gradually, not grew apart, but went, sep- went our separate ways for whatever reasons uh, in a very nice way. And it was just like, nobody can ever be that person. You know, this is just like, it's, it's absurd to compare anyone you love because everyone's so different and you love people for different reasons because their personalities are so different and all this kind of stuff. Um, before I forget, I don't know if you've ever seen this meme but it made me think of it when you said like it's you're always setting a trap for yourself and you're like oh honey what are you thinking when you're when your partner's being quiet there is a meme format uh, where two a couple are laying in bed and the guy's has his back turned her with his eyes wide open and she's looking over his shoulder at him and she's thinking he's probably thinking about other girls and and then it's fill in the blank after that and what he's thinking is like why would Cinderella's shoe fall off if it fit her perfectly? <laughs> or dog spelled backwards is God. Or uh, Ro- uh, Romans came up with the symbol for five before they came up with four. Because V, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so it's always just a completely total non sequitur. I, I think he's thinking about other girls. 
and then it's always just a complete ridiculous non sequitur is the is the the meme template i don't know if you've ever seen that one but it's pretty good good format no, that's that sounds for and i and i would say it definitely doesn't necessarily follow on gender types but i do think there are some people who just say what they mean and some people who want you to ask them yeah and, and, yep. and that's just different types of people some people are out there and mm -hmm. they really want to tell you something that you do not want to hear and they are mm -hmm. just gonna keep trying to drop hints and get you to ask right. about it and, and uh and yeah, some people are <laughs> warning. Yeah, warning. Um, yeah, and there there are introverts who very much don't want you to pry. And you know what? There's introverts that passive aggressively very much want you to pry, so that because they're the kind of person that would that wants to tell you off uh, given the opportunity. Um, yeah, I, I definitely don't think it falls on like introvert extrovert. Uh, oh no, 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 I was just uh, uh, yeah, just one type of example. No, for sure. I feel like we're definitely two uh, introverts that are very well-spoken, and no one would call us quiet, uh, but mm -hmm. that doesn't mean we're not introverted. Uh, it's just I think people have learned yeah. not to pry with yeah. me, because I will be brutally honest. Not always. I think I've chilled out in the last couple of years, but... That's good to hear. Yeah. Uh, thanks. Thank you. Um, well, I do have to go to yoga in about 15 minutes here, but... Okay. Uh, what, uh, or maybe about 20. What, what else? I brought up the eyes wide shut thing, the, which I do feel is such a, a fun thing because her confession in eyes wide shut s sets the course for this rabbit hole and the adventure goes on. Whereas in this one, completely inverted structure where they have their, you know, if you can call a polite society dinner and adventure. Uh, and then at the end of the night, she devastates him instead. <laughs> um, although I gotta say, her big reveal in the dead of, you know, just having had uh, a boyfriend before this guy who happened to die, far less devastating than the I would have left you and our child for some random sailor. Uh, I gotta be honest, that is a little, feels worse to me at least. Uh, I can understand that someone dated someone before me, <laughs> you know. But but didn't he have it coming? I mean, not getting a whole lot. Oh. Uh, he was asking for her to tell him something like that. Uh, did she ever really think that, or did she just tell them tell him we don't even need to get into whole eyes wide shut? Yeah, let's not do eyes wide shut. But but I would I would say that one of the things I love about both of those films is mm. the the subtext is how the film is really about. It's not being said. It's really about these ideas that are kind of surrounding the characters and they're dealing with those, in a lot of ways, intangible things that you can't really articulate, whether, whether it's jealousy, love, death, all of them kind of together. Um, another thing that I would say that I love about the portrayal of marriage is something that it took me, I definitely did not understand this about marriage when I was younger, uh, but you are always... Uh, you are never really arrived in marriage, and uh, anyone who feels like they have arrived in their marriage is probably missing some things that are going on in their marriage. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not gonna point out, but like, but marriage, you're always still like actively trying to uh, pursue that person's love and make them feel special, and that never really goes away. 
Um, I think there are definitely people that get married and then they become someone else and they feel like, all right, well, your love is now a given. I don't really need to mm. do anything to uh, keep that going. Uh, yeah. It, yeah, it's just kind of we've arrived, we're married. Mm-hmm. and uh, That's when things fall apart. Yeah, exactly, because that's it, not how healthy relationships can maintain it. I think this yeah. is also why people have sort of purely symbolic, uh, ceremonious, a second marriage, a third marriage, to sort of reinstate their vows after, you know, whatever, 10, 20 years. And I think that's, you're absolutely right, although I've never been married, I have been in long-term relationships, you do have to not just renew your vows, but it, there has to be... I don't want to say a freshness, like you have to surprise your spouse every day, because some people do, you know, you're going to have a bunch of normal ass days. But there is that, um, you have to reinvigorate it somehow, whether it's romantic or, or fun or, or just let's try a new food or whatever it is. You know, so it can be the surprise bringing you flowers, it can be the, I know you love Thai food, I, you know, let's go to a Thai food place tonight. Um, whatever it is, you know, you have to. You kind of, yeah, you have to be on your game. You have to continually refresh and renew those vows each day with not just little surprises. I mean, maybe you have some more practical oh, things with I would this, just but... say whatever your love language is that brought you together, you got to mm-hmm. just keep it up. You know, that, That's I, good. I, would, I wouldn't say it's like, oh, you got to reinvent the wheel. Um, but you, however you've communicated your love with that person, you got to keep doing it <laughs> and it's mm-hmm. like so if you're worried that uh you're being jealous about them you think they're talking to somebody else then um then why aren't you trying to win their affection more uh mm-hmm. quit being jealous instead be mm-hmm. great and be the really great husband or wife that that person wants to spend time with and then maybe you that's think desirable about that. yeah right right it's, it's human nature if you are unsatisfied to look elsewhere um so yeah uh, and I think maybe I, I said things like, oh, you get them flowers or you take them out to dinner because I, one of my lo- love languages is definitely gifts. Yeah, uh, whatever. Yeah. And that's most people I'd say that applies. That, yeah. Except some type, of, some type of purchasing of items. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But. Um, but yeah. Uh, you think this marriage is going to last? Gabriel, I did confirm that's his name. Mm. Are they going to make it? Yeah, I think so. Well, one of the one of the most interesting things about it, display, and Eyes Wide Shut, uh, which we do know that they sort of renew their vows at the end with the great closing line, which we don't have to <laughs> yeah. get, We can wait till the episode <laughs> yeah. to get into that, um, which is a very important point for those that know the reference. Like, that is also something that needs to stay in the relationship in order to maintain healthy. But one of the most holding interesting... Holding hands, that's what we're talking that's about. That's right. Holding, hand, um, holding hands. Yeah, physical affection. And... Uh, which is a love language and what I'm getting at was lost my train of thought open communication being if you're feeling jealous just be honest about it and you could even preface it you know and be like hey maybe I'm being paranoid but I'm feeling this way confirm or deny you know and that might be a difficult conversation but difficult conversations are what keep people together sometimes yeah, open communication, despite the fact that in the dead and in Eyes Wide Shut, they are devastating com- reveals of this person's inner world that the spouse had, didn't know about. Um, I still think they ultimately lead to something healthier and, and a, an understanding the other person more. 
especially if they're difficult, but just open communication in general. Because like I said, you can be preemptive, and as soon as you start feeling a little jealous, you can be like, hey, let's talk about my jealousy. And you can let me know where you're at so that I don't have to guess what you're thinking. You know, And that's huge. A lot of people never do that. Open communication, I think, is probably the most healthy thing that you can practice. You never really get it right, but you you got to practice it over and over again in relationships. And some people are better at it than others. Some partners are better at it than others. But you see, it's enormous. It's, to me, the most important thing. I would, yeah, I would argue communication is the foundation in any relationship. Um, but it's not always talking. Um, com- communication is a variety of ways that you uh, communicate value, needs, intimacy with another person. I would say, I would hesitate to always, like, be completely, uh, I guess, I guess my only caveat. Because mm-hmm. I think sometimes in relationships you can just fixate on the wrong things. Like, I brought up, like... Yes like petty jealousy or whatever it is you know sometimes that's just you and you need to like if Mm -hmm. that's just like something that's an issue for you maybe it would benefit you to be like hey this is what i'm like but if you already told that person that you don't always need to remind them and (laughs) keep your private battle to yourself yeah yeah Yeah, no i agree i think but that's a if it's all if it's ongoing if it's something that's an issue Mm -hmm. bring it up but sometimes it's like maybe that's something you would talk to your therapist about um That's, a, that's a good compromise. Your spouse is not your therapist, and it's not their job to... Yeah, mm-hmm. anyway, go ahead. Yeah. No, I was just saying, yeah, you're right. It's somewhere between what each of us are saying. They're, they're, it's important to at least bring up so that your spouse knows so you don't have a totally private internal battle. Uh, and be like, hey, I do have these feelings sometimes. You know, I, It would be nice to maybe be, even be reassured every once in a while, but you know, that's not your job. That's my, my thing. Totally fair point. Uh, and yeah, maybe something for your therapist instead. And if your therapist suggests, have you talked to them about it? Maybe go for it. But yeah, open communication, absolutely enormous. And again, like I said, since jealousy was the thing that got brought up, which as I get older, I deal with less. I feel that less uh, significantly. And so it's less of a conversation for me personally. But I've definitely had that conversation with people. I mean, I've, I've known people, not partners, but like friends or roommates or something who, who experience paranoia and it can be about anyone, you know, and I've, I've told them like, you got to talk about it. You know, it doesn't have to be to me, but find someone that you do in fact trust because it's face of paranoia is usually a trust issue and uh, which is way deeper than whoever you're aiming it at. And it's like, find someone you do trust who can listen to you for a few minutes and be like, this is what I'm feeling. Do you think this is the reality of the situation? And that's just another open communication thing is like, start with, this is where I'm at. How do you feel about that? Which is why I was trying to say, if you are feeling jealous, being like, hey, I might be being ridiculous, but let me tell you honestly what I'm going through right now. And that's, I think if it's a mature person, they'll appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess to segue back, that's, and I, I can't help but bring this up, but that's that's what Othello does wrong. If you're familiar <laughs> with Othello, and yeah, well, <laughs> got him the green-eyed monster. A lot of the thieves of of uh, I would argue eyes wide shut are in Othello. Just the concept of like someone being tormented by the image alone of their spouse cheating on them. I mean, mm-hmm. that's what ultimately drives Othello crazy. Uh, what, yep. what Othello doesn't do wrong is just talk to his wife about it. He just had one conversation in that play about it. 
what yeah that's a do. that is the yeah. most extreme example i can think of yeah for sure i mean i mean iago's no good he's the devil Iago, in that well, story yeah. yeah i mean we don't have to go into iago uh yeah. but to, to segue back into the, the movie to me this is an enjoyable film um probably because i know the story and uh i love how how true the film is to capturing uh, the environment and really the sound of the the words themselves. Uh, however, at the same time, is this something that works better as a story? Is it just should we just stop trying to adapt James Joyce's stuff because it never really feels right as a film? I mean, it's something yeah. I think about with this. I'm like, I don't. You kind of have to like Joyce, or or at least be okay with a story like this to to really find it interesting even i would say just because otherwise you're just kind of like walking in and you're just like hmm. what's going on all right i guess something at the end happened and then you just right. kind of and i'm not I mean, yeah it, it just it's, it's I mean, a tough one as a movie i would never yes. be like this is a movie i'd recommend everyone see it's, definitely it's, not it's, it's it's almost experimental film at the same time it's not experimental at all it's a straight it's adaptation. a very strict it, adaptation yeah. yeah um yeah i i completely agree with what you're saying except i take issue with one thing which is you have to like joyce to like it because and this has not come up yet i'm not the biggest fan of joyce i i understand what he does and i think there are certain lines that i've read that are absolutely gorgeously written i think irish people are some of the best uh lyricists in literature that i've ever read in my life you know it's i forget who it was but somebody said uh Irish writers eat the language, something like that. And I think that's true. Uh, it's very like, it's, you can feel it in your mouth, even if you're not reading out loud. You know, it's a very, um, and Finnegan's Wake, probably the best example, it's a very bouncy, flowy, lyrical thing, despite being mostly gibberish and triple entendre and all these, you know, multilingual puns and stuff, which I think is really fun, but I will never read the whole thing. I will pick up to a random page uh, but I will never read The Wake. I will probably never read Ulysses. Um, and so my view on Joyce is, is, I don't know how many people feel this way, but I think he's a little obnoxious. He's obviously a great writer, uh, but I find him like barely digestible. Um, anything, I mean, I've picked up, you know, his four main books, Dubliner's Portrait of the Artist, Ulysses, and then... I've even picked up the, the random shit, like Stephen Hero and like, you know, some of the letters and stuff. And I can just, I've never really been, I mean, I didn't even read all of Dubliners uh, when I read it. I definitely skipped some. Um, I definitely read Araby and the Dead and whatever the first couple stories are. Probably none of the other ones. Because I just find it in some weird way, it's almost so mealy and so, it's so much to chew. It's like a, it's like an overdone steak. Visceral. It's like I, I have to, yeah. Well, I have to, yeah. It's visceral, and I have to chew on it for so long that it, it's like I can acknowledge the talent that it takes, but it's just, it's not my thing. Yeah, sure. No, that's you that's know? total fair. But, I feel like a lot of people are like that, so I'm not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And to be fair, the first hour of this movie, I was pretty nonplussed. And then the ending, I think, is completely like inarguably beautiful. Um, but uh, <clears throat> I will say that there was a period in New York where a roommate and I used to pull out Finnegan's Wake and we discovered if we tried to read it normally in our 
you know, American accents, it was very difficult. And as soon as we started practicing an Irish accent, the whole book made sense. Well, it didn't make sense, but it made sense to read it out loud. And we found the music in it by reading it with an Irish accent. Uh, so if you've ever just picked up Finnegan's Wake and been confused, imagine it in an Irish accent. It really works. I have to get out of here, but I want, I, first of all, I want to throw it to you if you have anything else to add to, to that little rant. But I, I want to do a little game. I have Finnegan's Wake pulled up. I want you to pick a, pick a chapter, and then I'll, I'm going to flip to a random page and, and read a bit. Okay, we could do that. Um, I will say, I guess I just, I'm definitely somebody who loves Joyce, Portrait of an Artist, Dubliners. I think anybody can read those and really enjoy them. Um, Ulysses has got parts of it that are really great. The whole thing has definitely got some Finnegan's Wake guest stuff. I've never read Finnegan's Wake. I don't know if I ever will um, because of a lot of the problems you're talking about. But Ulysses mm -hmm. is very readable for the most part, as is um, Dubliners and uh, Portrait of an Artist as a young man. Um, but at the same time, not every artist or voice is for everyone. And so that, that's mm -hmm. all I got. Yeah. And I think with, with The Wake, there are obviously people, you know, other artists who absolutely love it. But I think it's one of those books where it is so dense and it's such, it's like an obstruction to itself. It's obstructionist literature where, like, you really have to dig and really care and love it. You know, it was one of John Cage's favorite books. He even has pieces where he, like, reads his way through it in his little chance-operated way. And, uh... And he, he cited it as, like, it's always fresh. I've never picked it up and not been a little stunned at what I just read and, and curious and having to figure out the puzzle, that kind of thing. And so it's one of those books where if you read it, you read it for life. Whether you read it cover to cover, that's another story. But it does inspire artists, and I would say that's mm -hmm. an unarguable. Artists read Joyce and will just say his stuff is just, it's inspirational. Uh, mm -hmm. But, yeah, yeah, pick something out. Let's hear it. Yeah. I will say, as someone who loves puns, uh, Finnegan's Wake has made me like giggle before and there's actually a reference twice in it to uh, Alfred Jari who is one of my favorite authors Finnegan's Wake Jari I'm going to see if I can find the line real quick yeah he references Alfred Jari twice he has novel ideas I know oh. <laughs> That went on too long. Go ahead. It's really, really loud <laughs> in my headphones. <laughs> he has novel ideas, I know, and he's a jarry queer fish betimes, I grant you. And Cantabras, a poisoner of his word. And it goes on. It's a very beautiful sentence. And there's another reference to Jarry as well, where he basically says, he's a man of my own il uh, ilk, or he's a man of my own... He's just like me, is what he says. <laughs> so, Finnegan's Wake, if you want to pick a chapter number and then I'll just do that how many chapters are there well it's obnoxious there's chapters 1 through 8 21 through 24 30 through 34 and then 41 it skips around because with the dream logic the idea is like he goes through different phases of the dream and some of the chapters are lost to memory okay let's go 41 uh, last chapter great I actually have memorized the last line which is elliptical and becomes the first line uh, when I worked at a Borders bookstore, I would pluck Finnegan's Wake off, and I purposely memorized the last line. <clears throat> a hand from the cloud emerges, holding the chart expanded, the ever-soar of seeds of light of the cowled owl sowls, 
and what her dominatory and defmut, after the night of the carrying of the word of Naus, and the night of the making medals to cuddle in a cuddle pot. O oh, Lord of risings in the yonder world, and there's a bunch of words I can't pronounce, of Netamplin top triumph speaketh. Va, sovereigner, scotterbrand, and renewaler of the sky, thou who at night, and it just goes on and on like this. But the more that you do it, the more that you play with the book and sort of open to random passages, every once in a while it just it'll it'll just mind fuck you on accident. Much obliged, time of day, but worth, O clerk? And it just keeps going. But the the final line, which I won't butcher with my mediocre Irish accent, is away alone, alas, a loved along the River run past Eve and Adams from swerve of shore to bend of bay. Which I always thought was just so beautiful. There's a there's a joke, I forget which writer said it, but he said, uh, Finnegan's Wake is a 700-page joke whose punchline is the. Because it ends mid-sentence and the last word is the. So yeah, that one always pleased me, even though I'll never read the whole thing. But it, it's very amusing, I think. Well, I think you like films that kind of does what Joyce does in uh, mm-hmm. book form. So that's something that I feel like I've talked about a lot with like something like Burkheit or Harmonies or whatever. It's like that. that yeah, is yeah. what Joyce does in his writing where, and I would say in a medium like writing, you can capture humanity. And I would argue mm-hmm. in a way that you can't do in any other medium. Uh, because you yeah. can get the senses and what somebody's thinking, and are, if you're really good, mm-hmm. you're able to almost at I think what you're describing is that visceral, emotional level connect with it, and and mm-hmm. uh, I yeah I, I think it works best in in book form to me. I don't I don't know if films yeah. can quite do that in the same way. Um, I think there are moments, but where you do get that that fully fleshed out moment, you can get in literature. But it's just, it's such a different medium. And it's such, I mean, there's that that literary quality, you know, to sound stupid, there's that literary quality in books that you cannot do in with just images and sound. Because um, it's, you're reading it, it's in your own inner monologue. It's, it's just a different medium completely. It's a different thing. And so, yeah, maybe I think most adaptations might be a little foolhardy, which is why the better ones are when it's in the spirit of the thing and not, not so strict. Which I think actually, despite the fact that it's impressive, might be one of the one of the only failings of this film is that it's such a strict adaptation that it almost feels rigid. It's almost like the singer, too technical to be good. There are obvious things about it that are well done. It's a well-crafted film. It's made by a great filmmaker at the end of his life. But uh, it's technically perfect, and there's like some of the spirit has waned a little bit, right? Uh, that's also one of the reasons I brought up that that Bukowski quote about writing. As the spirit wanes, the form appears. And I think this movie is very formal. It's technically done very well. You know, I would have loved to have seen Altman make this movie with this many characters, and I think he would have been a little more inventive about how he shot it. Everything's very by the numbers in this film in terms of the, the direction and the camera work. It works, and it's good, but it's too technical to have the spirit. That's my view. I guess yeah. in a very Joyce way, I would say, yeah, exactly, because they are missing the life in the story, and that's why it feels like that, where it's technical and you don't feel the underneath it. I would, I would argue that is the tone he's trying to 
achieve mm-hmm. it. So yeah, I in a lot of ways I'm like yeah, that's that's why I think it <laughs> think it works. But I I would get people that that don't uh, because it's not this emptiness uh, that our main character Gabriel feels is something that all the characters feel and and in mm-hmm. that way I would say it's it's not pleasant it's kind of scary um, I know right. we're, we're at the end of our time I don't know if you want yeah. to do ratings yeah, yeah. real quick and then call it yeah let's uh, do ratings and then to respond to what you just said I do think even though the film is crafted very by the numbers and none of the shots are particularly interesting or you know no one's going out of his way the camera just serves a function I do think that may not be the case for the last 10 minutes. I would rewatch the last 10 minutes of this film because I do think something of the spirit is captured briefly just during the dude's monologue after she, not even during her confession, but just then she goes to sleep and then we get his inner monologue. And then I think there's something there where he like approached the spirit of the story. Uh, but maybe given the story that's that's almost impossible not to do because it is the epiphany, you know. Uh, but yeah, ratings. Uh, what's yours? <laughs> yeah, uh, I won't go through the whole system. Our Chuck equal plus minus system. It's a tough call mm-hmm. for me, but this movie's a plus uh, because it kind of wow. checks the boxes for me personally. Uh, I don't know if this is one I would like recommend to a lot of other people, uh, but I think that if you like the dead and you you want to see yeah. a, a movie version of it check it out it does a great job adapting yeah. it and so yeah that's my i rating. would never recommend this movie to anyone unless for some reason the book dubliners came up and i'd be like oh are you aware of the you know i cannot believe that larry who was our guest last week said this is one of his favorite movies of all time i that is i cannot wrap my head around that such an interesting um, pick it is a weird it's a weird pick um, I'm going to go I don't think we have ever given this rating before but I'm going to give this film an X okay <laughs> and an X to be clear we don't have time to go over the rating system listen to another episode but an X is not a minus a minus is this movie adds negativity to the world X is not that's not the case X can be many things as we know but this one is one I would not recommend it to anyone with except for this one caveat and also I will probably never watch it again but I acknowledge its craft it's a movie I liked the last 10 minutes gonna forget about it now (laughs) that's that's fair the scientific rating is Mm. a equals so write down I don't I don't think anything by a famous director like Don Houston is going to get below equals and the way right. our current scientific system is is uh, but yeah it's a, the scientific rating is an equals um, yeah I, I would say most viewers probably wouldn't get much <laughs> out of this film so I definitely can't no. rate it higher than a plus and completely would understand I wouldn't I would have a hard time understanding anyone like re- uh, reacting strongly negative to it because I'm like what what is what do you <laughs> you just don't like people interacting that you had some kind of visceral response to that i, I don't know uh-huh. uh but i guess it's possible I, I imagine most people would fall asleep you turn this mm-hmm. on you're gonna take a nap yeah. <laughs> um i have you know for whatever reason we gave larry the choice last time of picking it but it was going to be my turn i i want to do something that's novelistic or something that feels literary but i'm gonna go a little off or a little unpredictable because this is a, a film that feels literary, but there is no book. There is no adaptation. 
And there's a film by Charles Burnett that's leaving Criterion Channel in a couple weeks, which is also my why it's my pick. And it's called To Sleep With Anger. And it is, to me, despite not being based on a, a novel, the most novelistic thing I've ever seen. Like, that, that depth and that visceral, that, that thing that we're talking about, that almost ineffable quality of what it feels like to read a, a good book, that's present for me in To Sleep With Anger. Regardless of what I may think of the story, it has it, that quality. Or I'd be curious to think if, if you also feel that way. So, yeah, To Sleep With Anger next week for sure. All right, you heard it here, To Sleep With Anger next week. Until then, this has been uh, Movie Victory, the only scientific rating movie podcast where we get into all the science, crunch the numbers, so you don't have to. You can just focus on the films. All right. Enjoy Bloomsday. Um, you know, pick up a copy of uh, Ulysses and read some of it. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's the only way to c- celebrate Bloomsday that I know of. Or pick up Finnegan's Wake uh, and don't read much of it. <laughs> Can you read uh, Finnegan's Wake on Bloomsday? Hasn't it been outlawed? Do people at the Bloomsday parties, are they like somebody's reading Portrait of an Artist? Throw it away. Not today! <laughs> I'll lay this one. You can definitely watch Before Sunrise on Bloomsday. Yeah. I'm playing Finnegan's Wake. And I spread mine on mine. Like, it's what I'm doing, spread. It's churning sheep, your wench is rising. I lay a few stones on the hostel sheep, a man and his bride and breath between them. I-